Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the Wall Street Journal editorial page with me, Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. Thanks again for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please sign up with us with Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So another week, another indictment. Yes, I'm afraid it's Donald Trump, of course, who's been indicted again, this time along with 18 alleged co-conspirators by a Georgia district attorney on charges relating to his attempt to overturn the result of the state's election in 2020. We'll take a look at this latest case, but we'll also try to grasp the wider political predicament all this leaves us in, with Joe Biden also facing increasing scrutiny over escalating allegations about his son's business dealings and what he knew about them. And of course, with Trump facing multiple, multiple indictments against him, how bad is the state of our national politics right now? Two likely candidates for president next year, both the target of intensifying legal investigations and the objects of widespread mistrust among voters across the political spectrum. Uh, With me to discuss all this is a very familiar voice, William Barr, who served, of course, as U.S. Attorney General, not once but twice, first under George H.W. Bush, and then, memorably and tumultuously, eventually under Donald Trump, whom he first staunchly defended against false claims of collusion with the Russian government in the 2016 election, and with whom he then fell out, as did many other Republicans, over Trump's claims of fraud in the 2020 election. And Attorney General William Barr joins me now. Bill Barr, thanks for joining Free Expression. Thanks for having me, Jerry. I want to talk about the wider political context that all this is happening in. But let's start, if we may, because we have to, with yet another indictment of Donald Trump. This week, we've seen the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, charging him and 18 co-conspirators with various charges related to his attempts to overturn the result of the election in Georgia in 2020. I don't know if you've had a chance to read the 90-odd page indictment, but I'm sure you're familiar with its details, particularly with the specific allegations and the specific charges that are made. What do you make of it? The Georgia indictment I think it is excessive and overly broad. It sweeps in too much, both including people and too much lawful conduct. I think it will have a chilling effect if this law gets established, essentially. And I think it's in some ways just as dangerous as what it's trying to respond to, which are the Trump's hijinks after the election. Unlike the federal case, unlike the special counsel's case, which I thought was very focused and carefully done, you know, I think this one is a bit over the top, and I'm afraid it will enable Trump or feed his narrative that this is all political persecution. So I would have preferred more discipline uh, coming out of Georgia at this stage. There's been a lot of focus on the RICO, the racketeering charge, obviously, which is the center of the case, and in particular, the citation of these various things that Trump had, meetings he had and phone calls he had and tweets he sent and this kind of stuff. What in particular do you think represents overreach here? Look, I think what the federal government did was focus on the nub of the problem. You have to be very careful when you're using the criminal justice process in the political arena. It calls for brain surgery, not butchery. So the federal government focused on the nub of the issue. When they cited statements about fraud, They said that these were statements that were knowingly false when they were made. There were specific allegations about fraud that Trump knew were false. It wasn't just state allegations or statements he made. 
And the other thing is it focused on, I think, what the nub of the issue is, which is the setting up of the false electors in conjunction with, as part of a plan to use that as a pretext for having the vice president essentially do away with their votes, send it back, or reject the votes of those states. So setting up the panels in themselves, I'm not sure that you really say that that should be treated as a crime. I think what was bad about them was that it was done as a pretext to feed into the key act, which was going to be the vice president's action. I'm not sure some of the people that were involved in this stuff in the States understood that context, and that's the context that makes that problematic. Let's take something at the very heart of of the case, which is this phone call with Raffenberg. Now, look, you know, I have been very critical of Trump, and, you know, I'm not trying to make his case here, but I listened to that call many times. It's a one-hour call. It's over an hour. And I think from the call, frankly, it's very clear that what he's saying, and he says this repeatedly, is we have a lot more votes that we think are illegal, over 200,000. And here they all are, and here are the different categories. Clearly, it's much more than we need. We only need 11,000. So clearly, somewhere in there, you can find 11,000 votes. So the premise of his statement, I think, fairly understood in that call was the supposition that among the many votes they were claiming were illegal, there certainly were 11,000 illegal votes. I don't think you can understand his call as saying, just give me 11,000 votes, whether or not they're illegal. So I think it could be a dangerous case. And then they sweep in a lot of statements, regardless of whether people thought those statements were false when they were made. It's just statements. And by bringing in all these actions and saying they're part of a, the crime, a RICO crime, I think it's a dangerous step. Now, the bottom line is, was Trump's conduct after the election hard-nosed politics or, you know, did it cross the line? And I think that's a fair inquiry. The Justice Department concluded was to be expected, and I don't think it was overkill. But I think this case in Georgia goes too far. So now we have four four criminal cases against Donald Trump kind of more or less running concurrently. We have the Alvin Bragg DA in Manhattan over Stormy Daniels payments issue. We have the two Jack Smith special counsel cases, one over the Mar-a-Lago documents, one over the post-election kerfuffles. And now we have the Georgia one. How would you rank these in terms of their seriousness and the likelihood that they will result in some conviction uh, somewhere other. It sounds as though you think both the federal cases by the special counsel, Jack Smith, you think they're pretty strong. Well, let's start with the worst. The worst one, which is, in my opinion, a grave abuse and a political hit job, is the one in New York with Alvin Bragg involving the payoffs to Stormy Daniels. And I think that case is an outrage. And unfortunately, set the stage for these other cases, which then undermine their credibility. I don't know what will happen in New York, but I think it's a lousy case. And if there's a functional justice system up there, then it shouldn't survive. It's largely predicated on a federal statute, which they're misreading. To me, the most legitimate and serious case is the document case. I think the document case is legitimate. I think if the facts are as alleged, it should be a slam dunk. I also feel it has nothing to do with the political process as an example of 
Trump's penchant for living close to the line and always being on the edge. And this time he pushed it despite advice he was getting, despite all the warnings. And he has, in my opinion, not a legal leg to stand on. And he's not being really pursued for having the documents. It's for two acts of obstructing, deceiving a grand jury and trying to deceive the Department of Justice and the grand jury on the surveillance tapes. So that is a strong case, and I'm not sure the department had any other choice but to bring it. I think the other department case on January 6th, as I've said, I think it's a legitimate case, but I think there were a lot of reasons at the time not to bring it, including the very strong sense of a double standard in the country where, with one hand, they're pursuing this aggressively against the president, and on the other hand, they appear to be giving Biden kid-glove treatment. And I think that that's doing a lot of damage to the department and the perception of our justice system. So, but nevertheless, I think the fact is that Trump went too far, and this is not an abusive reaction by the Department of Justice. And then finally, the Atlanta thing, for the reasons I said, I just think it goes too far, sweeps in too much, it sprawls all over the country. I don't think that was necessary. I think if Georgia had essentially done their version of the federal case and focus on the pivotal acts that crossed the line and tried to keep it narrow so it didn't look as if they were sweeping in all the speech and the political activity, it would be a lot more defensible. And then the practical question, General Barr, what's the likelihood all these cases going on, given that we have a presidential election campaign starting and given the general time it takes to put cases like this with all of the rights of the defendant and discovery and all of that, what's the likelihood that any of these cases you think will come to trial before election day, which is now, what, just 14 months away? You know, I have more familiarity with the federal system. And I think both federal cases could be tried before you know May. I think the January 6th case was constructed and narrowed so it could be quickly tried. And I think it will be. And I think a competent judge could move along that document case, which is very, actually fairly simple, move that forward at a fast clip. I'm not even sure why it has to wait till May, but that's the date that was set, apparently. I don't know enough about the New York system, and I think just the magnitude of the Georgia case makes it doubtful, in my mind, that this is going to be done before the election. I want to come on to the Biden stuff, too, which you mentioned quite rightly, the sense of double standards people have. But again, just to then follow this through to its logical conclusion, you think, you know, those federal cases are both pretty strong. I mean, obviously, no one knows what happens in front of a jury and how a trial unfolds. And you think they can both be done in practical terms. They can both be heard or tried well in advance of the 2024 election. So by the sound of things, you think there is a... And I, I say this with a hint of sort of incredulity in my voice, not because I don't believe you because it just seems such a bizarre state of affairs. Do you think there's a pretty good chance that Donald Trump will be both, as all the polling suggests, the likely Republican nominee for president next year and facing a prison sentence? Now, we'll see what happens with appeals and everything else, but there's a very strong probability that he'll be in that position as Republican nominee as a convicted criminal. It's a possible scenario. I'm still one of those who does not think he's going to get the nomination, but it is possible, and that's something that Republicans are going to have to consider. You know, in the current environment we are, it's sort of this black and white world where either totally for Trump or totally against Trump. And I think the fact is, I think we're here not because of persecution of Trump. I think we're here because of Trump's own personal excesses, and he's largely brought all this on himself. I mean, his behavior in the document case was outrageous. 
can't be tolerated. And I think his actions after the election were also outrageous and shouldn't surprise us that there is a response to it. And the other thing is when you're leading a, a political movement in a very contentious time and you hand a club over to your political adversaries, you shouldn't be surprised if they beat your brains out with it. So opinion polls have Trump anywhere between 30, 40, 50 points ahead of the field. There's a poll out New Hampshire this week that shows him in the 50s and no other Republican candidate for the primary in double digits. What makes you think here as we stand now less than six months before the first primaries that he'll be denied the nomination? I think Trump has a very strong hold on 30 percent of the Republican primary voters. I think the additional 20 percent he has bringing him to 50, that group understands the problems with Trump, and I think they've rallied to him a bit because of the indictments. I think the dynamic before Bragg did his political hit job up in New York, the dynamic was Trump was hemorrhaging support. DeSantis was coming up very strong. Trump was sinking like a rock. And that was the case until Bragg brought his indictments, and then Trump went up and has been holding it in the 50% range, or now a little bit below that, maybe. So I do think that dynamic could, and I think it will, reassert itself as people are actually faced with the choice. These polls were taken after the indictments or while the indictments were going on. I think there's a natural inclination to rally to President Trump. But I think when people actually have to start thinking about what it will take to win the election, what it will take to, quote, make America again, they'll quickly see that that road would be calamitous for the Republican Party and ultimately for the country. And so I think they will come to their senses. When I step back and look at the big picture here, and I felt this way since leaving office, what makes this a tragedy, what's going on, is because the majority of the American people are ready to send the radical progressives to the dustbin of history. They are rejecting them. We're prepared to reject them. And so naturally what would occur at this time is a coalescence of a broad coalition to do that, which is exactly what happened in 1980 when Reagan won a, a definitive victory and liberal was a dirty word for the next 20 years. I say this because if you look at the battleground states or tight sort of contested states, look what's going on. In Florida, it was a one-point state, and now under a conservative governor, it's a 20-point state. He's not a rhino. He's a conservative governor. Same in Georgia. It was a one-point state, and Brian Kemp won by 7.5%. He didn't do it by being a rhino. He's a conservative governor. Virginia, which has been a red state recently, you now have Yunkin 15 points ahead of Biden, whereas Trump is losing to Biden. In state after state, we have Republican politicians who are conservatives who are able to muster that kind of coalition. The only place we can't do it is on the national level, and that's because Donald Trump has divided the Republican Party by pandering to a particular segment to of it, and the way he goes about it is repelling key segments of Republican voters, and I think he has the best chance of losing to Biden. I also don't think Biden's going to be the nominee of the Democrats, but 
that's another issue. So let me put it to you. Let me put the case for Trump to you, which using some of your own arguments here, the, the case I think that people have for Trump, even if they're not particularly enthusiastic about it, I mean, you're probably right about the numbers, maybe a third of Republicans are hardcore. But I think a lot of people do, they look at these cases that have been brought and they do see, I'm going to overstate it for effect, but they just see, see a merciless persecution. Now, you yourself have said, you know, you think the Alvin Bragg case is pretty ridiculous. It sounds like from what you, you just told me, you think the Georgia case is overreach. You do think both the federal cases have considerable merit. But as you also pointed out, this is a Justice Department, and we're going to come to this, this is a Justice Department that even as it's pursuing perhaps these legitimate cases against Donald Trump, it seems to be soft peddling, to put it mildly, on the president's son. So people are, again, are thinking this system is just wrong here. We're facing this onslaught from Democratic prosecutors using the law to go after their political opponents. And and in those circumstances, we've got to rally around Trump. The fundamental problem there is, without getting into all the pros and cons and the merits of those particular issues, we shouldn't be fighting the election as if it's part of this legal case, okay? I feel the great threat to the United States is the agenda of the radical progressives. I stipulate and believe strongly and have had to deal directly with their excesses, their misuse of the criminal justice process, their viciousness in going after their political enemies. So I subscribe to all of that. But the key question is this, how do we make America great again? And to do that, we need a decisive victory. This is not about the vindication of an individual. I would say an individual who brings more trouble on himself than anything else. But It's not about the vindication of an individual. It's as if in 1980, we resurrected Richard Nixon and tried to vindicate his reputation and, you know, argue all of his grievances. You know, I think Nixon was a good president, but no, what we have to do is we have to win a decisive victory in the current environment. And by running Trump, who was a three-time loser, he squeaked through in 2016 because people gave him the benefit of the doubt. Every election since then, he has had a bad impact on the ability of the Republicans to win. And I don't see anything changing. In fact, I think they're getting worse. So the the ultimate question is, what will it take to win the kind of decisive victory we need? Now, the other question about Trump is, even if he were to squeak through and win a victory, besides not having sufficient support to make any lasting change, Is he the kind of person that can actually forge a coalition to get things done? What will that administration look like? He is an erratic, chaotic, contentious person who is, I don't think, capable of actually moving the so-called MAGA agenda forward and accomplishing anything lasting. And I think what his administration would actually end up doing is laying the groundwork for a 2028 massive progressive comeback where they would take both the legislative and the executive branch. So I think not only is he the most likely to lose, but even if he were to win, we wouldn't get any progress. We'd get continued trench warfare. Look at states like Florida, Georgia, and Virginia. As I said, you know, you don't have that kind of rancor and contention. It's politically hard-fought states, but we're winning. Now, why can't we do that in the nation as a whole? I submit it's because Trump is all about division. When Reagan built his coalition, it was unity, unity, unity. Trump started attacking his own Republican Party. People were very loyal to him and went to the ramparts throughout his administration to defend him. And he started saying they were worse 
than the progressive Democrats. And he did that before the elections. Most recently in the 22 election, he spent weeks beforehand attacking other Republicans. So I think the guy is toxic and not capable of making the kind of positive progress we need. We're going to take a break there. When we come back, I'll have more with Bill Barr, former attorney general. We'll be talking about the various legal problems that Donald Trump faces, but also the escalating investigations and allegations concerning Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. And we'll look at the wider political context, too. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash W-S-J. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with former Attorney General William Barr. Let's talk about the Hunter Biden case and the way that's unfolded in the last few weeks. You ran the Justice Department twice in two separate administrations. You're seeing, and you just, I think, just referred to it as the way the Democrats are handling this as a sort of a politicized approach to justice. First of all, let me ask you about this latest development we had last week in which the original plea deal that Hunter Biden had with the prosecutors kind of fell apart. And then we hear that he's now going to face the charges. And at the same time, David Weiss, who was the Delaware U.S. attorney, has now been turned somehow into a special counsel. Again, from your very much your insider's perspective, your knowledge of how these institutions work and how these processes work, what's going on? Well, until we hear from Weiss, I'm not sure what's going on. And I think it's important to hear his side of the story. But from all external indications, what I'm worried about is that I feel that that plea deal was throwing in the towel. I think that they were able to get felony convictions, and I'm not sure why they agreed to what they agreed to. It doesn't make any sense to me. And secondly, there were many reasons to impose some limitations and constraints on the investigation before the election, before the 2020 election, on the investigation of Hunter Biden and his financial dealings. And that's because of the Justice Department policy of not interjecting these things close to an election. But after the election, I don't understand why there was any reason for constraint and limitation. And I hear this stuff about, you know, well, you know, what would the optics be? Well, you know, who cares what the optics would be after the election? What the optics are that's the son of the president-elect. Does that mean that we don't take investigative steps? No. So I think there's some explaining to do. What the hell's been going on? And I'm worried that there has not been a vigorous investigation of the financial dealings of Hunter and how that potentially related and benefited President Biden, who at the time was not the president. And so I think that has to be pursued. And and I'm concerned that the statute of limitations has been allowed to run. So I think it's something of a mess. Again, you don't know, and as you say, we haven't heard from Weiss directly, but from what you're saying, and I think a lot of reasonable people infer this, 
It does look like they're playing out the game here as we approach and maybe even already passed some statute of limitations issues. This is the same prosecutor who basically did a plea deal, which, I mean, I don't know, again, you give us your sense of what happened before that judge in that courtroom. I mean, where some people have said it looks like they were kind of trying to sort of kind of get this plea deal past the judge with this blanket immunity that, that it seemed to give Hunter Biden. It looks very suspicious, doesn't it? Yeah, it was a train wreck. And for that to happen, the first question, essentially, the whole thing came unglued. And as you say, there's just fundamental questions about how it was structured, why there was no plea to, to the gun issue, why it's buried in something having to do with uh, deferral of the prosecution. It's hard to explain. And it's also very hard to explain how that could have been done professionally, given the high profile of this case. How it could have been so mishandled? I mean, this is a very sensitive issue to the body politic. Everyone knows what's at stake, that we have one standard of justice. And for this thing to be flubbed to the extent it was, just doesn't cut it. And the other thing is, I think the left has a fetish about who makes decisions rather than the substance of the decisions, and at the Department of Justice especially. And it's like, well, you know, this decision was made by a Trump person, or this decision is made by an independent special counsel. My attitude is, it's all done under the power of the attorney general. It's ultimately the attorney general's authority that's being used here. And I think an attorney general has to own those decisions and make sure that they're in line with what he thinks is fair and just. You can't sort of delegate it and let these people run off, because then you have what we have now, which is one hand doing something very aggressive, and the other hand doing something that appears, at least, very lenient. So that's why we have one attorney general, to make sure one standard is applied. The Hunter Biden stuff that we've seen most of so far, and this case has involved so far, has been the relatively narrow issues of particular charges against him over the gun case and over his tax misreporting of taxes. There is, of course, the wider investigation, which Republicans in Congress particularly are pursuing now aggressively, about his lobbying, his solicitation of looked like significant amounts of money from foreign companies, many of them with strong connections to foreign governments. And of course, most importantly, the extent to which his father was knowledgeable of or even possibly involved in these. From what you've seen so far, and again, I appreciate we're seeing you know a stream of evidence perhaps from one side, we're not seeing the rounded case. Do you suspect this represents potentially quite deep corruption here? I need to be careful because this case was underway when I was AG, and I don't mean to say or suggest that I have any inside knowledge here. I would just as an outside observer now, just based on published reports, the red flags are plentiful. And the basic question is, why would people be paying you know, this guy the money they are? I mean, what could he possibly do for them? Number one. Number two, why were the payments put through multiple different companies? You know, the kind of activity you would normally see with money laundering. I'm not saying it was money laundering, but it certainly raises that concern. And then finally, whether you're acting as an agent for a foreign country where you were trying to get some influence over U.S. decisions. I mean, that's one explanation of why people would be paying him that money. And in the absence of that, you sort of wonder that why would they be paying them the money? So, I mean, just the big ticket items like that, you're saying, you know, this requires some explanation and we haven't heard it. Instead, there's been two and a half years of what? Was there a real vigorous investigation underway to get to the bottom of this? 
it's conceivable that there was, and it's conceivable he has found definitively that there's no violation of law. But if that's the case, they better get that out pretty quickly and explain it. Until then, color me skeptical. Yeah. And it's been shifting, right? Because as far as the president's concerned, I mean, initially we were told for, I think, (laughs) well over two years that the president knew nothing whatsoever about what his son was doing. Right. In the last month or so, that seems to have been, shall we say, kind of modified and adapted so that he wasn't involved in business. I mean, that alone suggests a degree, perhaps the implicit acknowledgement of a degree of knowledge on the president's part that it would itself be concerning, wouldn't it? Definitely. That's another red flag. I mean, but this goes back to that guy who came out even before the election, Bob Alinsky, or whatever his name was, talking about the meetings and so forth. Here's the honest truth, and this is why a lot of the country is extremely mad, and that is there is simply no doubt that if this was one of Donald Trump's kids, he'd already be in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah, yeah. So let's quickly talk about the wider political context. First of all, interesting, again, you don't think Donald Trump's going to get the Republican nomination. You don't think Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee. Why'd you say that, and who is it going to be? So if I had to bet, this is just a hunch I have, but if I had to bet, I would say the Democrats, just actuarially, there's probably a a pretty high chance he's not even going to survive to the election. There's also the concern that he's going to not be even, there can be no pretending that he's compass mentis by that time. You have the fact that he has a vice president that most people rightly see would be a disaster if she ever ascended to the presidency. And you have a scandal that's gaining some traction and raising fundamental questions. And the fact is, suggests that the president's been lying to the American people. And, you know, his uh, approval rating is very low. And you may be heading into some rocky economic waters this coming year. Given that, I think the Democrats are going to give that ticket the hook. And I think they're going to let him go through the primaries just so they don't have any real contests going. And then before the convention, they'll do what they're able to do, which is using superdelegates and the imprimatur of Joe Biden and Jill Biden to pick what they think would be the best ticket. So I have a concern that the Republicans are going to go merrily along as if they're going to be running against Biden, and they're going to get cold cocked in uh, the summer, and they're going to be facing an entirely new ticket. A ticket that, by the way, if Trump is the nominee, will just utterly crush him. You really think so? Yes. Who would that be? Newsom? Newsom would be sort of their weakest choice. They are able to, you know, as they showed last time when they cleared the field for Biden in one fell swoop right up front. They show they have the power to do things. If I were in their shoes, I would pick a uh, female lead candidate and an African-American vice president candidate. So it's like a Gretchen Whitmer? Maybe. You know, I mean, they have a number of women they could turn to. The scenario you've laid out here is quite an optimistic one, which is that you don't think actually we're kind of condemned to this Biden versus Trump rematch. In fact, you don't think either of them is going to be the nominee of their party, and we're going to have some quite dramatically different political context. And let's hope you're right. I think many of my listeners, and certainly I, would subscribe to that too. But as you look at the sort of temperament of the country, I mean, the temperament of Trump supporters, Trump does have passionate support. We saw what happened on January the 6th. We see what he's done and the support that he seems to have, at least, as he continues to make his case, even as he continues to get into deeper and deeper legal trouble. That sort of passion is there. On the Democratic side, frankly, we saw what happened in American cities in 2020 with the kind of passion that the progressive left, you've just described it very well, this sort of takeover of the Democratic Party by this hard left, this extreme left. I mean, if you're wrong, and it does turn out, let's just take this hypothetically, it does turn out to be Trump v. Biden, as you know, that will be the conventional wisdom right now. How does the country come through that? Well, one of the reasons I feel strongly that we can't nominate him is I'm not sure we're going to get through it, certainly over the longer term. 
I think what's happening, the venom and anger in the system was started and turned up by the uh, radical progressives because they're essentially totalitarian. And anyone that doesn't go along with their program is not just wrong, but is the enemy. And any means to get them out of the way is fine. So that's where it was engendered. And a lot of what happens on the right is a reaction to that. I think Trump's style and his general approach to things has pandered to the anger and frustration that exists in a lot of the middle class America instead of turning it in a constructive direction. Reagan brought a lot more people into the party than anyone else. And he started the process of bringing working class Americans into the Republican Party. But he didn't do it by picking at the scabs and just inflaming them. He wasn't a demagogue. He explained what the issues were, and he tried to turn their frustrations into a positive agenda to fix things. Trump is not about that. He's a demagogue. He panders to the anger and frustration. He inflames it. He does everything he can to inflame it, not turn it in a positive direction. And therefore, a lot of them are acting based on their anger. And by supporting Trump, they're basically flipping the bird and saying, you know, the whole system is bad and we got to tear it down. So now you have the far left and a good segment of the Republicans talking about tearing down the system. Now, the system has to be fundamentally reformed in many areas, but it's sort of like this idea you just sort of sweep all the pieces off the chessboard if you don't like the direction it's going. And if all sides are taking that position, it's hard to see how we come through this. So I put fundamental blame on the left, but I think the historic problem we have is that Trump is a demagogue who is turning part of the Republican Party into a howling mob. And they have to start considering that acting just from impulsive anger and fury is not the way to turn things around, and it sells our country short. We owe it to our country to fix it, not to tear it down. So I'm hoping that over time, many of the people who feel that anger and have the impulse to flip the bird at the system by putting Trump back in office, will reconsider and start thinking, how do we actually turn this ship around and keep together as a nation? And I think that leads away from selecting Trump as the nominee. That's a good note on which to end, as I can think. Attorney General William Barr, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thanks, Jerry. Great to be with you. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much for joining us. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, have a great week, and I look forward to speaking to you again next time. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.